incredible to see you all. I don't have words to express how happy I am right now. I miss you all dearly. Man, we're family, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, for those of you who uh, don't know who I am, maybe you're online, uh, my name is Chris Chu, and uh, I'm, the, I'm the prodigal son, come home for a little bit. <laughs> uh, we're in the presence of uh, many brothers and sisters, uncles and aunties, and our Father God is just smiling with us in this moment tonight. He's so good. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? God, our hearts are grateful. So grateful. Lord, you have been with us on the mountain and you have been with us in the valley. Lord. And you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Your church is established by your hand. She shall not fall. Upheld by your cross, upheld by your blood. And thus, here we are. So Lord, we offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you as a spiritual act of worship. As you touch us with your word, would we hear your voice speak to us this morning? Would we respond with faith, with courage, with unity, and with conviction? For we are your body, and you are our head, and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah. The text this morning comes from the 58th chapter. Actually, from the lectionary, if you're following along, the lectionary has been taking us through some of the prophetic texts in the Old Testament passages. Um, so this week it's Isaiah chapter 58, verses 9 to 14. If you don't have your Bible, I'm going to have it on screen, but it's always good to have a Bible in front of you. This is the Word of God. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, and if you offer yourself to the hungry, and satisfy the need of the afflicted, then your light will rise in darkness, and your gloom will become like midday. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and give strength to your bones, and you will be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations, and you will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets in which to dwell. If, because of the Sabbath, you restrain your foot from doing as you wish on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a pleasure, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it, desisting from your own way, from seeking your own pleasure, and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I want to start off by telling a, a story of a testimony that I heard pretty recently. Um, it's kind of dark, you can't see, but that's a picture of a basement. And so the person who's telling me this story, uh, this person had very recently um, until very recently, lived in a country where it's very, very, very difficult and illegal to be a Christian. And this person had recently found a way to get back to the country that this person had to evacuate from. And it was very difficult to get back inside that country. This person got back inside the, where they used to live, in the city, and immediately had found that it was ransacked. 
and it was told by the neighbors that during the time that they had been gone, the authorities had come and had ransacked, and not only had they ransacked, they had found some Christian materials that had been hidden there. And not only that, as this person got this news, within the first few hours of being back in the country, they got noticed that the authorities were on their way. So you can imagine the, the, the panic, the, the drama, the, the, the emotions flying to the four corners of the earth. But this person remembered in this moment of panic, of fear, of anxiety, that in spiritual warfare, oftentimes, when you're being attacked by something, you can't pray it away. You can't faith it away. What God calls you to do is you actually have to walk in the opposite spirit of whatever is attacking you. And so in this moment, what she was feeling attacking her was fear, great, great fear, terrible fear. Not even for herself. Because this person realized that um, maybe like because of the passport of the country that this person was holding, that they might be somewhat safe, that all the local friends would be in danger. And so this person was just in terror for the, the safety of the local friends. And in this moment of terror, she remembered, I have to walk in the opposite spirit, which is freedom. And so she went down into that basement. She put on some worship music. And she said she danced her head off. Danced like a crazy woman. Danced like David in the Old Testament before the Ark. Not because dancing or emotionalism in and of itself has any inherent power. It's not like if I dance, God hears my prayer better. It's not even like sometimes for us Asians, my wife was reminding of us this, that sometimes if you, you think that your sincerity is enough to make something happen. Like if you're sincere enough before God, you're desperate enough in your prayer that maybe God will hear you. But the thing that moved God's heart in the situation was her faith. She walked in the opposite spirit of the fear that was attacking her in this moment as an expression of her faith that God is sovereign even over the powers of the world. See, God calls us to walk in the opposite spirit. Walk by faith in the spirit, opposite to the oppression you feel. I think this is a word for us this morning, for many of you this morning. Because the spirit of our age is anxiety and insecurity. I landed in San Jose Airport about a week and a half, a little bit more, almost two weeks ago. And this is the first time this has ever happened to me. I've lived in San Jose for actually like half my life. I moved from Hong Kong, different parts of the South Bay, and I ended up living in Cupertino from like, you know, kindergarten to 12th grade, right? So I know this area very well, you know, when I was pastoring here and with you and living in San Jose. I had never felt this, where from the moment that the wheels of the plane hit the tarmac, I felt an anxiety grip my heart. And at first I thought like, well, what is this? Is this like me? Is it, is it my old fear of flying coming back to haunt me? But the more I pressed into it, I prayed about it, it just didn't feel right, like something was wrong. And I started to notice that even all the people around me were expressing anxiety and, 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 and tension in some sort of way. I had the privilege, uh, Weiji and I had the privilege of going to uh, a, a retreat, a church retreat last weekend. And from the very beginning of the church retreat in this session, the, the, the MC was really tense. You know, you know when the MC is really tense and they're talking like five times faster than Chris Yu talks. You know, <laughs> it's like right. And then 
after the MC gets up, the worship team is going, the worship team's like, ah. <laughs> and Wei and I were like, oh, please, <laughs> let's breathe, right? There is this tension and an anxiety here. The very first friend that we got to meet when we came to San Jose and we had dinner in Mountain View was talking about how half the offices in Mountain View were just empty and people are fleeing the, the South Bay and maybe some of you have had those thoughts. You're in good company. You know, a lot of people seem to be thinking that. There's a lot of tension in the air. Is that from the Lord? Or is that the spirit of the age? And as the church, we're called to walk in the offices of the spirit. This is a, a famous painting by a Russian painter. Last name is Rublev, right? And it's an icon about the Holy Trinity, but the actual context of this picture comes from the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there's a story about Abraham, and he's sitting by the oak you know, amongst his tents, and three visitors come. And he hosts these three visitors with great generosity and hospitality. And it becomes clear in the middle of the story that these are not normal visitors. That these visitors are uniquely, not just the angel singular of the Lord, but quite possibly the angels of the Lord. And many of us, when we study the Bible, I feel this, that this may be the first manifestation of the Trinity in the Old Testament, um, unless you count Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where it says the spirit, plural, of the Lord hovered over the waters. So there's this incredible image of the Trinity coming to visit humanity. So that's why there's the halos around each of these visitors. But there's something that I love about this painting, which is if you look at the painting, each of the angels is looking at another angel. And if you look at the position of their fingers, right, they're pointing at each other. You look at their feet, they're pointing towards each other. And the center of this image, the center is the cup of fellowship. And what this is, is an image of what um, theologians call the perichoretic dance. I'll break that down for us, right? But the perichoretic dance is an expression of how love, specifically the love of God, operates. And the perichoretic dance each part of the Trinity is looking at each other. Each part of the Trinity is submitting to the other. Each part of the Trinity is paying attention to the others, loving the others, listening to the others, responding to the others. And what you find is that as you give yourself in complete self-giving love, you are loved back in return more than you can imagine. You give all of you 100% and you receive 200% back. Something really remarkable about that. So when we talk about the agape, the unconditional love of God, the highest expression of God's love, we're talking about this kind of love. It's not just an emotion. See, I can have an emotion of affection, and the Greeks might call that erotic love. I can have a, an expression of fellowship, of brotherhood, and, and, and the Greeks would call that phileo love. But agape love is other-centered, other focused, other directed. And so God calls us to faith by calling us, his church, to walk out his agape love in a world in which agape is countercultural. It's countercultural to be so other centered. This morning I went to get gas. 
um, in East San Jose before coming here. And Weiji was remarking how life and the rules of the road in East San Jose is really like the rules of the jungle. It's every person for themselves. No one has their blinkers until they absolutely have to. They're cutting you off. We were, we were in the parking lot trying to get out of the parking lot and the car in front of us suddenly stopped and we're like, okay. We waited for about 30 seconds and we realized the person just wasn't going to go and we had to go around them. It's just like people will drive like they own the road. But you realize it's not just like one selfish person or two selfish people. It's that sometimes life in a place like East San Jose can feel so competitive. It can feel so um, difficult that even like the softest, gentlest Asian aunties who come from Asia, you put them in East San Jose for six months and they become like tigers, <laughs> right? Contending and fighting, you need to get ahead. Agape is counter-cultural. And so the text that we just read calls us to agape. In the text of Isaiah 58, you see three sets of if-then statements. The first set is implied, that wasn't covered in the text we read. But in the text we read is the second and the third if-then statement. God says if, and his people do X, then Y, God will do Y. If, then statement. What is the if statement that God is calling us to do? And here he says, if you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. So I, I want to pause for a second here. Because when we see this if, then statement, it's really easy to read it as God is saying, do this. Just follow the letter of the law. Be legalistic. If you just fulfill the requirements of this, of this statement, then contractually, God says, I will then fulfill this statement right here. But if you read it like that, you're going to miss the point. We know this because if you look at the context of Isaiah, throughout Isaiah, God is saying, I don't want your legalistic religious worship. You go back to Isaiah chapter 1, God says something really, really shocking. He says, I don't want your prayer meetings. Some of you are like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I don't have to go to prayer meetings, right? Why does God say, I don't want your prayer meetings? He says, it's not that prayer is not important to him. He says, but I want your heart. And if I don't have your heart, if you go to the prayer meeting, it's cynicism and it's hypocrisy. If you go to a meeting where everybody's united by the gospel, but you yourself are not leaning into the gospel, it results in cynicism and hypocrisy. And how many of us have gone to church meetings in the past, and we looked around, maybe you're church hopping, right? And, and you're looking at it, you're like, okay, the songs are wonderful, the words are great, but I look at the congregation. I'm not talking about you guys, okay? I'm just saying, how many of you have gone to churches like this? And you look at the congregation, and you're like, I don't know if anybody in this room believes what we're singing right now. And if we don't believe what we're singing, but we're singing it, isn't this just a cynical exercise? Do we just live in a cynical world where we talk about faith, but we live in competition where there's no faith? Do we live in a cynical world where we talk about God's justice, but we go outside and we look at the brokenness and we say, well, that's just the way it is. So God calls his people to walk in his agape, 
in the midst of a world that is so cynical, he says, no, actually believe my character and believe my word and walk in it. I think to understand this text, you have to understand the context. And this is what I mean about the context. This part of Isaiah, some scholars call it the second Isaiah. It's the second half of the book of Isaiah. And so second Isaiah, the audience is one of two people. It's either going to be, and we're kind of debating this in the scholarly world, either it's the people at the end of the kingdom of Judah who are feeling very, very weak and vulnerable because they're a little country stuck between two big countries and the two big countries don't like each other. I mean, to bring it home for us, sometimes it can feel like us, Chinese Americans, stuck in this great power competition between America and China, and we're not sure either of them like us very much. That's kind of the position of the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah at that point. But the other possible audience for this book are the people of God in exile. See, the kingdom of Judah and Israel is not just any kingdom, not just any country, right? It's where the temple is. It's where God's presence is supposed to rest. It's supposed to be the place where God says, if you follow me, I will protect you because you are a unique and special people. So if this unique and special people have lost their country, have lost their temple, have lost their land, is it because God has abandoned them? Or maybe it's because they've abandoned God. And so the people in exile are wrestling with this question. And a lot of them have gotten tired of wrestling. You ever feel tired of wrestling? You ever feel tired of the burden of faith? You ever feel tired of trying to hold your faith in tension, but you're also like at work and you're just dealing with the stuff at work and the stuff in the world and the family, and you just want to live your life? A lot of the people in exile felt that way. So they might have been Jews on the outside, and they're still going to like synagogue and everything, but the inside they're losing hope. There's something else that you might identify with about exile. The faithful Jews in exile had a question, which is how do we raise our kids up in the faith? See, the first generation of exiles, they remember the temple. They remember the festivals. They remember what it was like to go into the temple and have their family cow be sacrificed for their sins and, and feel the weight of that but then also feel the joy of the wave offering, thanking God for the provision. Their kids didn't have that. Their kids grew up in Babylon. Babylon is great for some reasons, right? Like, it's a center of economic activity. You can make a really good career in Babylon. It was a center of learning and knowledge. The best universities in the world were in Babylon. And God had told them, I'm preparing a place for you in Babylon. Through the prophet Jeremiah, he said, this is the time in exile you're supposed to go to Babylon plant houses, plant vineyards, raise your families there. So they did, except they had a problem, because their Jewish parents started to look a lot more Babylonian than Jewish. They're still going to synagogue, still going to Hebrew schools, but their ways, their customs, their hearts, it's a lot more like the world that they grew up. And it's to this group of faithful people God says, if you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. What does it mean to point the finger and speak wickedness? It's not saying, hey, stop saying bad words. If you're saying bad words, stop. Okay? But that's not what this passage is saying. It's when your heart has become so bitter that you start to have a twisted theology. 
You see this in the Pharisees, who are also coming out of this kind of exilic kind of thinking. The Pharisees have developed a theology where basically if a person was sick or a person was a poor beggar, it must be God's curse on them. If you see someone who's rich and blessed, it must be because they had done something right in life. And a lot of it was born of the cynicism of being an exilic people. So that when people were on their way to synagogue, they might see, okay, here's a Jewish person. But this Jewish person, they, you know, I knew their father, their father was wealthy, but now this person had wasted all their father's money, was begging for money on the side of the street. And you're like, you that punk? Hey kids, don't be like that guy, okay? You start cursing people and you neglect to see that they are also beloved children of God. You stop to see that the homeless person who is out of their mind because they're high on drugs and Capital Expressway in broad daylight and they're flinging chairs around on the lawn and people are scared to go anywhere near them. You forget to say like this person, wow, I'm sad because they bear the image of God in them, but that image has become so broken. And instead, we stop to just And so God's like, remove the yoke of the injustice that you stopped caring about. When you see injustice, you don't have to have all the answers. You probably don't have all the answers. You're in exile in a foreign country. You don't have political power but at least have my heart to do something when God puts it in your hand to do something. Remove the yoke in your midst. And stop cursing people because you fail to see the image of God in them. Let God restore the awareness of the image of God. He calls us to generosity in the midst of scarcity. Remember, you have to walk in the opposite spirit. The spirit of our age right now is scarcity. I was reading a, a very interesting um, Substack article on the on the recession. It was written by uh, this woman who's kind of known as like a Gen Z like economic um, analyst. So she has good economic analysts analysis, but she uses a Gen Z slang. So she's calling our current recession. She calls it a vibe session, right? It's a it's a vibe session because it's a recession that's caused by vibes. She says basically the economic economic data does not seem to match a recession, but because people feel like it's a recession and some people want a recession. They act like a recession is coming, and that might actually cause a real recession. It's the vibe. It's the spirit of scarcity. Scarcity means that in this world there's limited resources, so you better put yourself in a position to get as much as you can and to limit losing as much as you can. Where that hits our faith is that we believe in a creator God who says, I own the cattle on a thousand we, we, we worship a God who says over and again in Old Testament and New Testament, it's like, if you look to me, it doesn't matter how bad things are on the outside. I will provide because I can create. Nothing in this world can create. We can only just move things around. But God can create from nothing. So can you be generous when you're looking at your bank account and you're like, shoot, I feel scarcity. Or maybe some of you, your bank account's okay, but then you look at the rising cost of college and you're thinking, you're calculating, okay, when my seven-year-old is 18 and has to go to college, I mean, is it going to be like a million dollars a year? How much is college going to cost? Do I have enough? In the midst of scarcity mindset, can you still offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the need of the afflicted? 
I struggle so much with this passage. He doesn't say give money to the afflicted. He says satisfy the need of the afflicted. And the more afflicted people you work with, the more you realize the need of the body of you. It's like the more counseling I give some people, the more counseling they need. And then if you're not careful, you end up on the phone for like 10 hours a day. And then they call you again the next day. And you're like, oh, what's going on, right? It's not their fault. That's how deep broken it is. Some of us actually have that need, but we try to hide it from other people. But really, we sense there's a bottomless need. And so we start to withdraw from each other because we feel that we're not able to meet the need. And if I'm not able to solve the problem or meet the need, then I just better remove myself. Can you be generous feeling your own scarce resources to be able to fix the problem? Because you're not fixing the problem. It's not about you fixing the problem. When we go out on mission, it's not about us going to fix the social, economic, educational problems of people. We cannot. And we certainly cannot fix the hunger and need for salvation that is in every single human heart. Only God can fix the problem. Only God can fix the problem. You go in the generosity, not of yourself, you go in the generosity of God. In the generosity of God, someone who needs to talk for 10 hours can find their heart satisfied by a single word from the Lord. The Lord speaks it. What could it not be? So God calls his people to walk in the spirit of generosity. And then, here's the promise, then. Then your light will rise in darkness, your gloom will become like midday, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire to scorch my feet. When you have a heart to satisfy others with the generosity of God, God will satisfy you. How many churches have I gone to in the last two years where when I ask the youth, the young adults, and I ask the middle adults, I say, what does your church want from the Lord? They all say rest. Good, okay, great, that's a great thing to ask for. Then why has nobody found rest in the last five years? If we are the people of God and we're asking God for rest, why is it that when we look for more for rest, we actually get less of it? Perhaps we're out of rhythm with the Lord. Perhaps he wants to give it to us. But he calls us to conform ourselves to his way. Give yourself, not to ministry, not to programs. Give yourself to his heart. You'll find him giving to you. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. Every Chinese church that's multi-generational that I talk to has one thing on the heart. Parents are weeping over the children. And we know why. There has been a great exodus. There has been a great divergence in the culture. So many of our friends are deconstructed. And some of them, that's just, that's just their term. They're just tired. They're tired of faith. And they're tired of the faith that they, they're not sure they ever believed in in the first place. And we have to honor that and respect that. The promise of God is not that, like, okay, there will be no ruins. Those from among you will rebuild them. Those from among you will go back to those who are tired. And they're tired of, of trying to uphold a faith that is kind of false and is kind of held together as a facade but then they go out to the wilderness and they don't even have a facade. And they're like, I miss God. Who will go to them? You walk in the way of the Lord, you let him refresh you. And those from among you will go out to them. 
I mean, this, this I clearly wasn't intending this, but right when communion started, I got a text from a friend, and uh, his wife's stepdad, who had been an atheist, committed atheist for about 60 years, on his deathbed, just accepted Christ. Just accepted Christ because the, the step, the, the, his wife, right, stepdaughter, felt a conviction about a week ago. I need to go tell my stepdad about Jesus. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. Is that not your heart? This is contained in the promise. Set your attention fully on the Lord. If because of the Sabbath you restrain your foot from doing as you wish on my holy day. Think about this. So many of us, we preach sermons and we listen to sermons about Sabbath being not doing anything. But is this the way the Sabbath is framed? It's not about not doing anything. It's about actually taking your gaze off of yourself and putting it on the Lord. When I have my gaze on myself, my anxieties are activated. I can take my kids on vacation, I'll go on vacation, I'll go to Disneyland, and I'm like, oh man, tickets are really expensive to Disneyland these days. That was a lot of money to take our family to, right? And so your kids are having fun, or sometimes they're not even having fun, right? You paid half your rent for tickets to Disneyland, and the kids are like, can I have an iPad? Like, are you serious, child? Like, are you my child? What's going on here? You set your attention on the Lord because the things that are wearing you out is actually here. When your attention is on yourself, you can have no rest, no matter how nice your surroundings are. Desisting from your own ways. This is interesting. Seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own ways. But God, haven't you been teaching me that I should be valued? Especially some of us who come from cultures where we have been told that we have no value. Um, and ever since I married Weijie, I've been watching a lot more Taiwan cinema. And uh, you know, we, on Netflix, um, they showed the two kind of golden horse winners from, uh, from Taiwan this year. And they're interesting because they're both kind of about like um, Taiwanese women who have reached a point in their life where they have been giving, 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 giving. And now they are breaking, 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 breaking. Because they've been told to do this, be this, conform themselves to this, limit themselves to this. And they have no one who understands their heart except for they hope their daughter. But then when they talk to their daughter, their daughter's like, no, stop, can't take it anymore. And then there's like disappointment and broken relationships on both sides. And we're like, God, haven't I been learning from you that I matter? That my needs matter? That my pleasure matters? That my voice matters? And God says, yes. That you take one day and as an offering, you say, God, I matter. But I'm going to set my attention fully on you because you matter. And as you center the Lord, you find he centers you. As you give value to the Lord, you're finding that he gives value back to you. Remember Rubleus painting, pericardic dance. When your attention is fully on the other, the other's attention is fully on you. How many of us wish that we got that kind of agape from a family member or from a spouse or from a friend? And then they disappoint us and our hearts get hurt and they get hard and get cold. And God is in the corner saying, I want. 
loving others, I find that I'm loved by God. And centering the Lord and submitting myself, I find my soul satisfied. I'm going to rush through this. But the challenge for us this morning is not just to hear the word of the promise, but to discipline ourselves to respond to the promise by faith. I'm talking a lot about a mindset shift, but the text demands action from us. It's not a legalistic action. It's not like if I just satisfy the letter of the law, okay, God, I'm going to remove the yoke, got it, I'm going to stop speaking evil, got it. It's not like that. It's actually, as you shift your mindset to say, God, I'm going to take my gaze off of my own anxiety and over my own lack, over my own scarcity, over my own pain. It's not that they don't matter. They matter so much to you, God. But I'm going to focus on you and on others in faith. I'm going to find that God is focused on me. And he satisfies me. And when we, as a community, together, focus on the Lord and focus on each other, our community will find that his focus is on us. And a community that's walking out by faith in the promises of God is infinitely attractive to the world. Because we're all looking for a place like that, amen? And people will be flooding into these doors. Maybe not this door, because no one knows where you are. But <laughs> one day, when you're ready <laughs> to tell people, they will know, and they'll come. Not because you're so great. You're great. It's because God's really great. Tightrope walking. If you look at yourself, you fall. Tightrope walkers always look straight ahead. Discipline your gaze. Hebrews 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean to fix your eyes on Jesus? It's not just to know about him. It is to fix your eyes on him and learn from him, for he is our example. Take up your cross and follow him. Trust in God's affection. This is such a word for so many of us here. We're hearing this word that some of you are in pain. Haven't I trusted? Yes, you have. Haven't I suffered? Incredibly. This is not a rhetorical ask, you know. The older I get, the more I mature in faith, the harder it is to trust in his affection. It's a battle. But it's his invitation for us too. Trust that because he loves you, his generosity will never fail you. You may have felt abandoned by him. You may feel abandoned by him right now. And it's really hard to trust in his affection. But I'm telling you, it's there for you. And when you trust in his affection, you can walk out in faith. So actions reveal attention. God calls us to walk in his agape. Adopt his perspective, his mindset. Look at people and see the image of God in them. Set your attention fully on God. And reflect this adoption of mindset with faithful discipline. If you say, okay, God, I want to have your mindset. That's great. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say hello to a homeless person. That's good. I mean, yeah, have a conversation with someone like that. But then you lose it after like two weeks. And then you're back to the same anxiety and the same depression and the same struggle. And as a community, there has to also be a discipline. There has to be a leadership. 
There has to be unity. There has to be mutual commitment. So I offer four steps for you, because I know and we like steps. First is lament and confess. What do I mean by that? Let's lament and say, God, I think I have been living a very self-centered life. Not because I'm a bad person, but because it's been hard. And I'm in pain. Raising a child is hard. Being sandwiched between caring for older parents and caring for younger generation is hard. It's been hard to face my mortality day after day. There have been a lot of losses. Let Jesus sit with you in your pain. Don't just try to tough it out. And in your pain, confess, God, I admit it. I haven't centered you. It's okay. It's not to shame you. It's just to admit the truth. And sometimes even as families, we have to sit together as a family and tell the truth about what happened to us. And then return to the Lord. There's no shame about this too. But sometimes it helps to take a step where you say, you know, as an individual or as a family, I'm recommitting myself to what God's called me to do. So don't just like hear the sermon and if this touches you, just think, oh, that was a nice word. If you feel that God's speaking to you, Take a step, even a small step. Even at lunch today, just say a special prayer. Say, God, I return to you. Or our family, we return to you. And this part is really important because I think that we're such gifted doers here in Soroka Valley that you say, okay, I've got the word. Okay, let's go do it. But listen, because without listening to God, it actually isn't relationship with God. And it isn't obedience. It's just your human ambition. And in a community, you don't just listen to God, you actually have to listen to each other. Because if we're like 10 people in a prayer meeting bragging to each other about our great revelation from God, there's actually no unity in there. And how much of that revelation might not actually be revelation, it's just our own ambition. But when you listen to each other, the Spirit of God in the other speaks to you. And the Spirit of God in our midst speaks to all of us. So don't just skip to, I'm going to walk my faith. Listen to each other. Obey in faith. Guys, it's going to take courage. It's going to take sacrifice. But this is not martyrdom. This is not like me or my generation. I'm going to just die and pour out everything I have so that the next generation can walk ahead of me. No, it's actually obedience in faith because it's a response to God's word. And you do as much as God says. And you take your ego out of it. And you're just saying, God, I just want to obey. I just want to pick up my cross and follow. And guys, when we do that, the promises that God makes, they're sure. You can count on it. So I ask you all to stand as we close in prayer. And the worship team, you're getting ready for a response time. You can get into position. I'm going to ask you just to take a moment. I'm not going to say anything. I want you to ask God himself to just nudge you or say something to you if this word has been hurting this morning. Father God, we want all of you. And we want nothing that's not of you. Because you are still the author and finisher of our faith as individuals and as a people. And I lift up my dear brothers and sisters, Lord, as some of us, we have been in the wilderness for a while, and it's been hard. Some of us are new to this wilderness. Some of us have been here for so long, we don't think there's anything but wilderness left. 
But we know by faith that your promises are sure. And so God, give us the grace to fix our eyes on you and upon the people that you're directing our gaze to, trusting that your affection is on us. I pray for healing in the name of Jesus, God. Some of us have been waiting for healing for a long time and we haven't received it. And we just stopped hoping. And I pray, Lord God, in this season, you would release what you've been holding back. I don't know why you hold back, but I know it's for our good. And God, for some of us, Lord, um, we just need a revival of hope. So Lord, would you sovereignly 